Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Well, our first reader is Peter Barrasso. He comes to Riverside from Washington, D.C., where he was an associate in a boutique communications firm comprised of former presidential speechwriters. He's so shy. <laughs> He's from Wyoming. He went to Georgetown. He majored in government, and now he is here. And um, he briefly worked in Baltimore, Maryland, where he received his first film credit, Legal Clearance Liaison, in the HBO production Game Change. Please welcome Peter Brasso. All right. Um, yeah, my name is Peter Barrasso. Go to go to UCR. My roommate told me that I've I've read this out loud like five times today, and she's like, "You you sound like a fucking lunatic." <laughs> like when you read it like at full force. That's about right. Um, so so we'll see. I might that might happen. I'm gonna get into it right now. All right. Tonight I stand before you, earnest, urbane, humbled. My thanks to the board of associate <laughs> my thanks to the board of the Association of Mail Order Literary Guest Speakers for, after repeated requests, extending the invitation to give the night's opening and keynote address on the impending death of art, alongside the talented future masters of the fine arts from University of California Riverside. I've penned many late night drunken letters to the department pleading for the opportunity to give the commencement address. I have yet to hear back. But it certainly isn't because of a lack of self-addressed and stamped envelopes. Yet I hope, for if I did not hope, I would have nothing other than this blazer, these pants, a Subaru Forester. I shall now commence. Oh, Lucy. We meet tonight on a truly momentous occasion, for it is but once in the course of human history that a discipline can be said to have come to an end. Breathe deeply and feel with your entirety the world without art. Hear the words, the era of art has ended. It is clear that our generation's greatest men and women spend their days in Bloomberg trading terminals, selling the past and futures of the world. They work with an unceasing will, only comparable to Alexei Grigorievich Stakhanov, the hero, so <laughs> the hero socialist laborer who mined 102 tons of coal in one shift in five hours and 52 minutes. It is they who will create the art of the future, beautifully formatted Excel sheets, PowerPoint presentations, proposals to convert grain futures into drums of yellow cake, they do not sleep because air has not yet been commodified. They are fueled by direct deposits, cocaine, and suspect quaaludes sold from the region of Eastern Europe that was previously referred to as Ukraine. <laughs> now, my friends, you may wonder, what of the artists? Will they fight to save art? They might. Periodically, they'll gather in small groups and share their emotions with one another. But history has moved on. What of these artists? artists in this very room. Can they go to New York and have Bloomberg trading terminals of their own? Of course not. Such notions are absurd. They lack the constitution to survive at the altitude of commerce. What will become of the artists is unknown, but because art will have ended, it will make no sense to call them artists. Perhaps they will be referred to as peasants. <laughs> 
Some will surely become individuals capable of securing employment. Few fortunate sons and daughters will find that they were meant to be talent agents, pawnbrokers, evangelical preachers, convenience store security guards, door-to-door salesmen, train conductors, call center associates, apprentice tradesmen, animal control professionals, and most obviously, prostitutes. The former artist-slash-author-prostitute, still unable to understand that art has ended, will think his experience is good character research for a novel or an expose, and it would be, but art will remain dead. All will have two basic types of clients. The first, a woman who upon entering their room will produce an egg beater from her purse. Perhaps she'll smile before she says, I found your description of the egg beater exhilarating. How is it possible, she'll ask that after creating it, you never wondered how and if it all fits back inside you. The author, as he consumes the egg beater, will regret more than anything his musings on the Atlantic Ocean. On good nights, he will get pudgy middle-aged men who say they just want to talk, but really they just want to cry, and they will. For those who can't, or foolishly won't, rent out their bodies, um, will resort to more desperate means of survival Though they still won't understand their own biology, they'll come to understand the benefit of human beings evolving to have two kidneys. This money will last for a winter, perhaps a week. Then they'll find out why they have two lungs. We'll wonder how many ribs one needs to stand erect. Those who underestimate will find employment in the circus and be called accordions. Those born with O-negative blood, universal donors, will find God and bathe in His glory as they convert their less important organs into some form of currency. The worst of the nouveau riche organ-selling artists will host fancy dinner parties with their new friends who will be named things like Wellesley and Bethany and Penelope and Frederick. They'll invite their prior artist friend who used to break into the title song from Annie after hearing the words hard knock who will now instinctively shield his neck and eyes. Penelope will snicker. The old positive god of a host will snap, but not a Penelope. His waitstaff will emerge from the kitchen with an enormous rectangular silver platter, not coincidentally the size of a coffin, covered with a silver lid. The head waiter, presumably an an insufferable failed poet, will remove the cover revealing what must be tens of thousands of dollar coins. No one will know his manuscript's title poem. Ode to the star that's, that's right up there by the northern light that is often overlooked. And he'll think that this is tremendously sad as he returns to the kitchen, thinking of the best way to smuggle out a kitchen knife after his shift ends. He'll, before failing to render his self dead, pen a suicide note with a cover letter in which he imagined he would create a beautiful image of his self riding a whale off into the universe, but it will be misread by his caseworker and psychiatrist as his suppressed desire to make love to aquatic creatures that can only be fulfilled in death. For those artists with families, I'm afraid circumstances will be quite dire. Furnished houses will suddenly seem larger as the furniture goes. The house becomes an apartment, becomes a station wagon, After shouting in tears, followed by a failed attempt at makeup sex, for they were so famished, they will no longer insist upon an exclusive diet of of organic salmon and kombucha. They'll they'll either fat son or daughter and thank neglect, the patron saint of trans fat, the prophets of Nabisco, and whatever one thanks for the evolution of seasonal allergies, seeing a month's worth of food, the family dog, stupidly will not cower. There's of course the final group of artists whose luck will seem so unbelievable, entirely too good to be true, and it will be those who find patrons. The obscenely wealthy who always fancied themselves poets will invite former poets, will invite a former poet into his home. At first he'll simply ask her to read to him. She'll have but a single tattered anthology that she will read to him. Later, he'll ask to hear some of her work. He'll say things like, they were beautiful and tragic, and that the images were so striking that they consumed his mind for days. He will say, I must taste their source, and without thinking, she'll kiss him. He'll feel drunk, ravenous. He'll insist she's made differently, that her heart pumps an enchanted liquid that he needs to taste. Still, 
she still believing her importance, the triumph of her creative spirit, her creative soul, will undress herself before he can even ask and be foolish enough to make the incisions on her inner thigh on her own. He'll lap the blood, thinking it the milk of paradise, nothing less than divine fucking inspiration. The source of creation will be but a matter of inches from his nose, and he'll pay it no attention. Even though she trimmed and perfumed, she'll still cry out in ecstasy. He'll blot the, he'll blot the, blood, from, ah, he'll blot the blood from his lips with a handkerchief that'll save and think himself infused with inspiration, feeling creativity dawn upon him as a gift from the angelic poet. These are, of course, but the early syndromes and symptoms of syphilis. <laughs> Take these words, if nothing else, as a warning of things to come. Move through the world with care and know that I am rarely wrong. I look forward to my new friend's remarks. Good evening and my thanks. You heard it here, folks. It's over. Wrap it up. You're welcome, Peter. Brooks Brothers? Brooks Brothers. Hey. I knew it. Love me some Brooks Brothers. All right. Welcome again, everyone. All right. Our second reader is Kate Bolton Bonici. She grew up in Alabama and graduated from Harvard and NYU School of Law. Do not sleep on this woman at all, okay? Just telling you right now. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Southern Humanities Review, Nanofiction, Body, The Examined Life Journal, Kudzu Review, and elsewhere. She serves as guest, as guest poetry editor of The Fertile Source and was a finalist for the 2012 Morton Marr Poetry Prize and is currently a Gluck Fellow. Please give her a hand, Kate Bonici. So I'm, I'm the first post-art poet to read. I like the animal control professional. Maybe that will work out for me. Um, as Vicki said, I'm originally from Alabama. Up a little bit. Is that better? Um, I've been in L.A. for about five years, but Alabama certainly makes its way into my work, um, and especially in these poems. The first one is called The Dove. They flew straight from a wedge of trees east of the field. When the men shot, air cracked open. My brother and I pressed our ears tight, trying to close out the sharp noise. We watched the birds plummet, marking their fall, and ran across dirt-plowed fields. The grooves were deep. We couldn't get the footing to run faster. Usually the birds were already dead, eyes glassy, feathers smudged. Sometimes they waved and flopped and we had to squeeze them in our hands, run back with feathers tickling palms. One of the men would grab a neck, swing the bird by its head. Broken neck, fast, dead, it was best. One day I brought back a dove barely wounded. I wouldn't hand her over, she was mine to save. My father rummaged in the barn for an old wire chicken coop. I found a shaded place for the coop and slid a bowl of water in through the little door, faded yellow t-shirt on the ground. I set taffeta inside. That's what I'd named her, taffeta like my blue Christmas dress. The next morning I woke early, wanting to hold her on my hand like a trained falcon, listen to the vibrating chortle coo a dove makes. The wire coop looked undisturbed, the little door was closed. Only Taffeta's head had been separated from her body, strung together now by the red threads of blood vessels and bloody cords. Something had mutilated her, some slick, still-breathing animal probably crouching or slinking back against the oak tree, against the flutter of leaves, body damp and hungry. I ran home like you do when you set something up to be killed. How kind a neat head ringing seemed then. How clean a quick snap broken neck. The next poem um, takes its title from a recent uh, translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses. And the quote is, they do remember though their lives as ships and the dangers they so often faced at sea. My brother finds the sea turtle 
dead and rumbled like a brown coat at the water's edge, clumped shell rounding up from sand. I want to leave, but he crouches low over the body. It's hard, he says, tracing tar lines with his stick, hard as an old tree. I was a tree once, says the dead turtle. I was a tree, and this is the story of trees. My brother doesn't hear it, wants to close its eyes. How do trees die, I ask. They rot, my brother says. The turtle does not move, mouths, they leave mountains for ships. At the tide line, water is brown with floating wood scraps, oil squishing under sand. Mama, tell me about a mountain. She picks tar out of her fingernails. At home, she'll scrape the bottoms of my feet with a wire brush. Neighbors have filed claims, signed papers, the lawyers brought by the house. Talk is all BP. Mama puts her foot in the tide, letting it cup around her heel. She's seen water catch fire. The turtle's fins are pitch thick. My brother shapes tar into jellied balls of sand. Pine ships once became legs, arms, ribs, hair, naiads, or other creatures. In deeper water, the busted oil rig is sprayed down, a black smoke mountain. Neighbors get their claim checks. We watch the tide burble slippery and clotted at our toes. Mama will not tell me her oldest stories. I didn't think it would be so smooth, my brother says, touching the sea turtle with his open hand. The next, sorry, the next few poems um, uh, shift a little bit in terms of their movement and sensibility, I guess. Brother, this morning, freeway, your ocean, nursing east-west riptides down a lip of sandbar. The pigeon, your seagull. You, the man on the overpass rail, swimming in cop cars. Underwater, under, blood, each click and number, how close you are to slipping. Your small bones, the ribbed lawn, chair, truck, creased. Factory plumes press, thumbs to the sun. The smoke does not move or rise. You do not rise. Lanes of undertow pulling this, carrying that, hills, cliffs, cigar minnows mirror and forgive hooks, umbilical plastic, how we cut them for bait. This is instructions following the funeral pyre. To cool down a horse after riding, spray hose water at the foreleg. Move slow to the knee, the thigh, all four legs before chest to prevent chilling. Try this yourself. Aim water, almost ice, on fingers, wrists, elbows before wump of air loss in flattened lungs, before jolt cold to the heart like breaking. Wash off dust and burn cloth, stand cooled down, disappeared, acclimated in absolute loss, the unknown. Smoke clouds lift, fuzzy, incapable arms. And this last poem is called Car Radio. Song breathes the space where I'm going. I slipped off somehow now, it's all catch up. I mean I try to catch something this and this stumbling on music in your thumb. Do we sing to each other? Do we sing each other? Do we sing a song back to its origin? Our answers incomplete as each conversation. Arc up intonation, arc up love. Song down, baby sleeping, song warm in the speakers beneath my wrists. Sounds plat something new or crystallized self in isolate. These vibrations, a lonesome communion, a lost buzz on the tongue. Our voices blink in lanes of crosstown traffic. Thank you. I told you. She's dangerous. You got to watch out for Kate Bonici. Great. Come on forward.
You see our peeps? There's so many places to sit here. Yay! Great. Our next reader is Andy Holt in fiction. Uh, he started writing fiction while growing up in Tampa, Florida. He earned a BA in English from Wake Forest University, uh, where he also wrote and edited for the student literary magazine. After graduating, he spent a year in Chicago writing more stories, giving readings, and complaining about the cold. His first published short story is forthcoming in the Chicago Quarterly Review. Please welcome Andy Holt. Uh, thank you, Vicki. Uh, so I brought an excerpt from a sort of goofy crime novel I've been working on called Junk Food. Uh, this is the beginning of chapter two. Uh, chapter one takes place in Florida where a sort of inept waiter accidentally burns down a restaurant where the governor is eating lunch. Um, and the second chapter opens in a different place with different people, so that's about all the context that you need. Only one road traveled through Thirsk Mountain, Tennessee, running its jagged cut through the mountainsides, scattered with houses and burned up barns, 30 minutes even from the nearest town, Elizabethton, where the Thirsk locals would go for their gasoline and most of their food. The mail here was delivered by a local boy in his 98 Toyota Corolla. The water came from private wells dug into mountain springs. And for discarding their trash, Thurskins drove to the local trash compactor and paid Hank McRae's $1 per bag. Hank spent most days leaning against the hulking compactor and waiting for cars to pull up to the driveway, drop their bags into the opening, and give him a few singles to add to the bundle he kept in the front pocket of his denim jacket. By the end of the day, the rubber band could barely hold them all together. An Irishman's bundle, customers often called the banded stack of $1 bills, and Hank wasn't sure whether to laugh or be offended. They had no way of knowing his family was Irish. Today, the clouds had sunken into the holler. Hank's newspaper was heavy with the moisture. His fingers smeared ink where he held the edges. Assassination attempt on Florida governor, said one of the headlines, and the subheading, Suicide arsonist in critical condition. Hank flipped the paper to the other side. Recently, the articles had seemed to grow more and more violent, and he sometimes caught himself suspecting that the world was falling apart, but felt immediate shame for thinking a thought so cliche in a Southern man. The signs on Baptist churches along Elizabethan Main Street changed weekly, all to the same effect. The end is near, one of them would say, and across the street another would reply, you know not the hour all vying for souls like highway billboards. Only one sign never changed, the one in front of the church on the end of the street, which happened to be the only Catholic house of worship in all of Carter County. Worship the lamb today, for tomorrow the lion cometh. Around noon, a silver pickup with double-back tires pulled up to the compactor. Hank glanced up from his newspaper. Two men dismounted with the engine running, one balding and thin, the other thick-necked with hands like frying pans. The larger of the two, the giant, as Hank saw him, dropped the tailgate. The sound echoed like a gunshot off the mountainside. Dollar a bag, Hank said, not caring to yell over the engine noise. The plywood sign above his head displayed the price hand-painted in black. The giant pointed into the bed of the truck, not saying anything, not even acknowledging that Hank had spoken. The man's arm to peer, appeared to weigh as much as a tree limb. One dollar per bag, Hank said again, louder. The giant pointed again. Hank wondered how many times they could repeat the exchange before one of them would budge. The thin man leaned against the truck, ankles crossed. He glanced into the truck bed and grinned at Hank, chewing something in his cheek. Hank left his newspaper on the compactor. The giant silently watched him look over the edge of the truck. In the bed, strapped down on its side, Hank found the largest gumball machine he'd ever laid eyes on, having only ever seen the one near the front door of the Denny's in Johnson City. That one was taller than the children who pushed slimy quarters into it, but this one was larger still, six feet and disproportionately wide. The rainbow-colored gumballs inside the huge glass dome looked to be the size of apples, some of them oblong, all of them too big to fit into anyone's mouth, even the giants. It's too big, Hank said. Too big for what? the giant asked, his voice surprisingly thin and lacking the southern mountain accent of Hank's usual visitors. Northerners always sounded empty to him, like the meat of them had been cut away. The compactor, Hank said, and pointed at the small opening where waste was crushed with bone-breaking force. Unless, of course, you could take this thing apart. The giant glanced sidelong at his companion, who twitched his head back and forth. 
No, the giant said. It'll get crushed open either way in there, Hank said, pointing again at the opening. But not a second before, the thin man said. This thing stays in one piece. You'll have to go to the dump then. It's about an hour down the road in Johnson City. It's a man named Revis runs a junkyard by the Sitco. A salvage lot, you mean? The thin man asked. Something like that, Hank said. It's just a dump, but he'll give you anything in the yard for a few bucks, except in the cars, of course. That won't do. We need this thing gone, the thin man said, clapping his palms together and holding them there, crushed. The inside of the glass dome was fogged, and the gumballs looked wet. There appeared to be a circular opening carved out of the top, not big enough for them to fall out. Hank thought about the machine getting crushed, glass shattering, gumballs smashing into thin, flaky mush. Hank shrugged. Big truck comes by here once a week, hauls to the processing plant. They'll have, a they'll have a big compactor there, else it'll end up in a landfill. Hank crossed his arms. Fifty bucks, you can leave it here. I'll make sure the truck takes it away tomorrow. Twenty bucks, the thin man said. The giant crossed his arms to match Hank. Veins bulged along his forearms. Fine, Hank said. The thin man handed him a $20 bill. Looking at the giant, Hank decided to leave the bundle of money in his coat. Hank pretended to read the newspaper while the two men struggled to remove the machine from the truck bed. They both had to climb inside and push, then climb out again to slide the monstrosity onto the ground. By the time they placed it on the other side of the muddy driveway, even the giant was red-faced. Hank couldn't imagine what might make the machine so heavy. The thin man walked up to the driver's seat of the truck and put one foot onto the step, then paused to glance back at the machine one more time, its rainbow dome now sitting above the bottom. After what felt like too long, the thin man climbed into the seat, said something to the giant, and pulled onto the road. Out the window, the thin man saluted Hank with two fingers. The license plate had a large orange in the middle. Compared to the gumball machine, everything around the compactor looked almost to be one uniform color. Black metal compactor walls, rusted tool shed, gray concrete driveway, muddy ground with patches of dark grass. They left the machine directly across from Hank's reading spot, so he and the machine were now positioned like cowboys sizing up for a duel. The neon colors in the dome gave the machine the appearance of floating in front of everything else. Hank looked back down at the newspaper. He'd read all the articles, but he resorted to rereading a few. Some of the text had smudged, so he had to decipher the lines from context. Every now and then, he swore he saw the gumball machine waver on its feet. Another hour passed before he decided to look inside. Hank spent a few minutes trying to find the screws that held the machine together, until eventually he realized that this wasn't a gumball machine at all, but rather a collection of parts meant to resemble a gumball machine in passing. No slots for collecting change, no openings for retrieving the gumballs. The sides seemed to be made of cheap sheet metal. Hank tucked his fingers into the metal hinge below the glass dome and pulled himself up to see the gumballs, which when examined up close were obviously painted. Hank retrieved a crowbar from the tool shed and had no trouble freeing the glass dome, which wasn't attached by anything more than some kind of thick glue. Working quickly, he tried not to wonder what he would find inside, but he could hear his thoughts catching up, and when he pulled the dome off the top and the hollow oblong balls fell out and into the mud, his mind and eyes reached the same conclusion at the same moment. A gray-haired human scalp was sticking out from the remaining balls. Hank shrunk back. A few more gumballs fell out of the way to reveal two round eyes staring forward at him. They blinked. Mm-mm, came from inside the machine. Hank imagined robotic parts humming like some twisted android experiment gone wrong. Mm, the sound came again. And the, the head tilted back to show the full face of an elderly man, black duct tape covering his mouth. Hank reached forward, hand trembling, to peel the tape away, leaving a bald rectangle in the man's stubble. The old man studied Hank for a moment, looking almost disappointed. Who are you? Before Hank could answer, the old man started jerking his neck back and forth, straining to tilt over the gumball machine with his weight. The base didn't budge. The old man sighed. Just kick me over. Hank examined the shiny pink head, gray hair sticking out like peach fuzz. After a few silent moments, the old man blinked again. What are you waiting for? Give me a good kick. Instead, Hank pushed the machine carefully over with both hands, digging his feet into the mud for leverage. The sheet metal sides vibrated like a gong when they hit the ground. 
The old man wiggled out, bare torso, wrinkled bone legs, bare feet, completely naked. The old man rose to his feet, his right half now coated in red-brown mud, and wiped off only his knees with both palms in a quick one-two motion, calling to Hank's mind the way his grade school teacher used to beat chalk dust off his pant legs. Well, the old man said, fuck. He spun a slow circle to take in the mountainside, then settled his eyes on Hank again. I can explain. That's all. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Let's see. Our next reader is also a poet. We're kind of poet heavy today, but it's good for you. Poetry's good for you. Uh, Eric actually grew up in commerce, which is not in here, which is right next to Bell Gardens where I'm from, just so you know. He's a graduate of Cal State University Long Beach where he got his BA in English Literature. Uh, he lives in Long Beach now where he writes poetry and fiction and he's published in Verdad, White Pelican Review, Trajectory, and Pearl Magazine. Let's welcome Eric Loya. Thank you. Is this, is this good? Is that, all right. So, fantastic. All right. This is always the part where I feel like I need to say something witty and charming and um, I got nothing. So here's a, a poem about Riverside instead. It's called Sagebush Exile. <laughs> what a struggle to be anything other than vague in this desert city. City of sagebush, hot breezes, and jutting rock hills. Sprawling, a drunk passed out on the sidewalk. Riverside is as barren as moon dust and almost as empty. And yet, there are the palm trees, fanned out on University Drive and the yellow blossoms of Joshua trees, which birthed themselves out of crusted dirt. How they want for attention, to be admired for the determination of their delicate petals or the stoic look of their rough bark. In Long Beach, the ocean swells and collapses on the sand. Fog creeps along golf courses and manicured lawns. The beach wants for nothing. But maybe it's best if only for a moment, to turn away from the clouded sky, the blooming lavender and magnolia trees, the smell of carne asada drifting along 2nd Street, and live in the hunger of misshapen hills and rock gardens, to embrace the wasteland of the unclear with its distant crescent moon, unlit freeways, or the determined plants that depend on water from the Rockies like a dog that survives on table scraps, an ounce of water, a crumb of bread. All right. This so I did. I grew up in Commerce, which meant either you went to Bell Gardens High School or Montebello High School, and I didn't want to get shanked to death, so I went to Montebello High, which is I cannot stress this enough significantly better than Bell. No, I'm just kidding. It's not true. It's a little safer. That's that's true. That's true. So this uh, this next poem's about uh, Montebello friends. It's called Street Street Sign Atonement. I read about her death in the paper and thought of us. She was 16, had nothing to do with our old neighborhood except that she died of a gunshot and we dodged bullets on street corners where we fed on late night taquerias and boarded up car washes. We were hungry for packs of Marlboro Reds we stuffed in our underwear at Stater Brothers and breaking car windows with serrated rocks. We went from parking lot to parking lot and shouted at homeless men only to find they were half-starved dogs looking for a handout broke into warehouses to steal office desks that weighed the same as 40s of Corona in our pockets when we strolled through Montebello Park high on cheap weed and ourselves. And we're still dodging bullets, aren't we? Credit card debt and DUIs, failed marriages, and children wailing our imperfect parenthood in the middle of the night. We could have been ripped through, puddled in our mistakes, but every bottle of beer, every burnt cigarette, Reminds us we left one hood for another, searching empty streets with a, with a sign screaming vacancy over our heads. All right. So on that happy note, here is <laughs> uh, most of the middle section of my manuscript is uh, uh, about death. So here's the. Here's the bottoming out of the poems. <clears throat> it's called erosion. My, 
My father used to make me pray each night. He would kneel against my bed on an artificial knee held together by screws, a replaced hip, and another beginning to erode. We'd recite the words passed down from my grandfather, who lent them from his father, connecting us like rosary beads. We'd give thanks for daily bread, ask for protection against trespass, and beg for our souls to be taken to heaven, which could have been in a parking lot behind Save on Drugs, while my night, while my night light cast a dim orange over our faces and reminded us of our penance for being born. When cancer spread from my father's kidneys to his lungs and to his brain, I was 12 and began to pray again. This time, thronged by empty pews, elbows heavy on tarnished wood, bowing on the torn brown leather of the fold-out knee rests, my hands pressed together until the knuckles throbbed. I prayed that angels could live in little amber bottles of morphine, that dementia was painless, and Velcro bed, Velcro bed restraints wouldn't leave rashes. I prayed against expanding tumors, failing organs, and a childhood of bloody catheters and soil depends. Now, at night, in silence, hands unclasped, I still pray at a rollaway desk covered in dust and pictures of my father. He can watch from the safety of a green frame as our traditions are passed down word by word onto the optimistic white of a blank page. In a room that's always too warm, drawing sweat from my pores, the way a flame draws oil from a candle. Right. Well, I actually blew through those three poems, so I'm going to read another one. <laughs> these, these are happier, I promise. Um, this is one I haven't read in a while, so if I stumble over it, I apologize. Um, it's called Bossa Nova of Her. The music is in her. It's playing in her hips, in her breasts, it's singing in her voice, seducing the air to smell of perfume. She moves in just that way, knowing just that beat, shaking with just the right amount of bass so the tassels of her dress don't lose the swing. It's in the dark brown eyes that shine like the polished dance floor and lips that lust for the ivory of the piano. It's in the way she tilts her head so that her hair sways to the horns and how her cheeks feel the fire of flushed guitar strings. It's in the way she keeps the song close to her chest, long after the crowd is gone and the band has stopped, so that the music will mix with hers and become her own. To experience her is to know the bossa nova, to know the color of her body and the shape of her desires, to understand the want of words for a tune or a moon for its night. It's the need to hold her hands in yours, to have your feet in rhythm with the crowd and to feel their stares like whispers in your ear. This last poem was recently workshop, so hopefully it is significantly better than the last time I read it to the poets in the program. It's called Edge to Edge. To know the crooked teeth of a smile that shows too much of the gums. Fingernails chewed uneven and small ears are the currencies we exchange. The bodies we couple together smooth the fragile edges of our insecurities. My cruel tongue the wounded history of your womb. Pain against pain, jagged edge to jagged edge, we puzzle each other back into beauty. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Great, so our uh, next reader is another poet, Angela Peña Redondo. She is also a visual artist, and she was born and raised here in Los Angeles. Uh, she's a recipient of a University of California Institute for Research in the, grant, in the Arts grant, uh, and she's a Gluck Fellow. Um, she was recently nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Let's give her a big hand. Angela Piñarredondo. <laughs> I always have to do that. At least it wasn't like really high. I've been in front of people and it's like super high and I'm like, excuse me, can you please lower the mic? Um, being short, you know, you just get used to it. Hi, well, hello everyone. Ooh, I'm finally looking up at the faces. Um, okay, so I think I'll just read a couple poems, you know. 
cut right to the chase, which is our featured featured special writer. Um, all right, so uh, this short little ditty is um, is a uh, oh over the summer I. Uh, did a residency in uh, Portugal, and um, I stayed in this place where it was a Franciscan monastery turned home for wandering artists. And um, and uh, one of the groundskeeper there uh, uh, took care of all the animals and stuff, and uh, lots of dogs. And one of them was uh, this uh, really fading, dying greyhound, and uh, he was telling me stories of the sister, I guess, of this other dog of this greyhound and this this poem is about that and it's titled fall of oh is that a baby oh uh, sorry distraction distraction um no it's cute okay hmm. uh <laughs> so this uh this this the title of this poem is called fall of parched fruit in the body of a greyhound this wind you spoke of this wind of speed cut short only dust and bones held by bowstring. People left her at a Texaco, dead center in parched afternoon. Nothing in her but bone, some string. I hear your voice, the dry winds in it. I hear your voice crackle, the break of ribcage, lined in silver. Your story, a love story. An angel came then left for dead, if there's such a thing. I say that greyhound must have shimmer shimmered like a gunny sack filled with silver fish bones. She was an angel, you say, as you teeter. Yes, a parched gunny sack, black moons for eyes. Your head falls, a parched lemon, into the lap of my hands. And, uh, oh. Two is fine, right? This two? Okay, okay great. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, this, the last poem <laughs> is, 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 uh, my, is my version of a blues poem. I like writing blues poems. I'm not gonna come out, bust a harmonica, <laughs> but I wish I could, you know? Um, uh, but anyways. So, this is a blues for Kay in winter. I gnaw on dried figs like heart pills. Beyond the balcony shutters, purple prowls the flanks of sky. To listen to Nick Cave's push away the sky makes my inside shovel. They do all the heavy lifting. With your gaze and press, I become uncovered. So I say, Sky, you be good. Don't you leave even when these eyes sling low into its flesh hearth. When tongues gouge as they please, pocket an opening, the body both shell and flame. But now, the last thing I want is to write this. The last thing I want is to scratch out last times on the drab bark, allow the blade to whistle corners and curves until the deep O's hollow. Wasn't it just days ago, your mouth a soft scuttle on my thigh, our sundry heads sprawled, Stevie Ray Vaughan as far as the colorless hum of sleep? Still, why'd you have to do me wrong? Your dog word shocked up and down. You had to let this good thing throw down, stone against stump. You, kink of a broken radio, to think I thought the arch of your chin superlative. What can one do but leave hard, find ceremony in the thinning of mountains and rifled pines? If I could bulldoze you to a slither, I would. Hammer down mud roads in an old car. Tat, tat, tat with teeth and tobacco. Silence perches on the back ledge of your throat, and it's December. My head gapes open, the sky's giant, speckled and full of holes. And that's it. <laughs> um. Thank you. So um, I'm going to introduce the, f the final reader um, 
from our lovely, lovely, lovely program out there, out there. Um, and uh, it's Vicky Vertiz. Um, she is from, why'd you black it out? She's from Southeast Los Angeles, Bell Gardens. No, you did? Oh. And um, her work is widely anthologized and found in publications such as Open, Door, Open the Door, uh, from McSweeney's and the Poetry Foundation. Swallows uh, is her first collection of poetry and was published by Finishing Line Press in 2013. And she is not only a poet, but also a very talented nonfiction writer. So welcome, Vicki, and thank you. All right. Um, so yes, in the interest of time, I'll read you two instead of three, but they are jam-packed. Um, thanks again, Skylight, for having us. We're so psyched to be here. Babies are always welcome. Babies are the best artists. They're not worried. They will always be employed, Peter. <laughs> um, so uh, UCR is really amazing because we get to study with uh, the California Poet Laureate, uh, Juan Felipe Herrera, and uh, he always tells us to go to the candy store in his class, which basically means just you just go for it. Right, so um, this is because of him, this poem is his fault. So um, it's an ekphrastic poem, so it's after a porcelain sculpture of a tiny chihuahua, and it has little rainbow pom-poms glued on it. Okay, so just picture a little porcelain chihuahua right here with pom-poms um, by Adrian Esparza. Um, it's the same, uh, it's a poem after the same, a sculpture by the same name, <laughs> baby chihuahua. We're the same, perrito. I inside you longing for royalties, mirrored ceilings, for rainbow pom-pom, happy floor realness. I climb your supple golden back, cling to your skinny hocks, sit atop your brow, a ruby crown, king of small conduits. It's hard to see what is so bad about lollipops from here. What is so bad about tanks that skittle across bedrooms raising cribs, andaderas, jumping swings? Our jumpy castle is intact after the BB hailstorm. We remain by your side. Take us to your leader. It better be a baby. A wax one with cupy hair twists, a lick of soft serve on her lip. She better listen and she better work. She better not recall Governor Chihuahua. He likes us. He's a baby. We're his people. Cake toys covered in light blue frosting. We own this place, this white squared column. This horizon lacks diamond mines. No tutti fruity diapers. We near the oasis of gummy worms writhing to subway reggaeton. Brown club kids swerve pink mohawks, swing axes. Acha slice the air at the mace suspended that disco ball for one more dance. Told you it was weird. <laughs> Blame Juan Felipe. Um, this is still untitled, but it's a love letter to Morrissey. So there. Who knows who Morrissey is? Okay, see, now you know something awesome, good. Um, yeah, so just so you know, we love him. Although not, the idea of him, I don't really love him. He's <laughs> such a sufrido, okay. But so are we, okay. Because we craved permission to be despondent in English, Desperate for words to hide erections for boys behind trapper keepers. Needed to document our, in our journals those frequent Kotex leaks. Maudlin about how our parents didn't understand us, we yearned to do this in private, in the company of someone with rank. We hunted for you in crates, scraped pennies from the hands of grandparents who collected cans to feed us, all to hear your 50s guitar in the key of sorrow. We were born Juan Gabriel fans of twirl and flourish, punching farsantes in the womb. We know posers when we see them. You are savior for the disconsolation of youth and Mexican, born here and not, living south of the 60 freeway. No movement murals cushion our 99 cent store gray, our freeway interchange sky. You taught me to hate the queen. Since the church thought I was dirty, we were instant friends. 
You modeled desire for death by bus, side by side. We were your second chance. American Manchester, empty tire factories and soot-covered eyelids, bloody, broken front teeth from gravel and steel toes. Because we were strange, we fondled your open shirts and built a country around you of sidelong glances and glum gladiolus. When you first saw our tight black jeans and creepers, you caught us like that tiger. Recognize our crestfallen brown eyes lined in black, our red, red lips, a penchant for racing Chevys down Slauson with no headlights. We your wistful twins, that boy we won't share. We, you saw us make love in cemeteries, saw our mercurial daydreams, shared our lust for trim sideburns, Vegas beats to make us jump like beans. Forced fatalists by nations on all sides, we are death happy because it constantly raps at our door. In the carcinogenic heart of this Manchester, our black lungs sing with you because every time we listen, it's our last day too. Thank you. Congratulations to all the readers. We have one more. Uh, Eric Schunkweiler, who is a graduate of the MFA program at UC Riverside, will be reading from his book, Above All Men. And I just wanted to point out a few things that he did right um, with this book, like this quote, Schunkweiler has taken an iconic landscape and filtered it through near collapse and fear, then through loyalty and love, said Susan Strait. All right, so make sure you remember your professors. All right. You actually may be needing a quote from them soon. Is that right, Professor Becerra? Is that right? So, right there, remember, always keep in contact with your professors. All right, so because you don't know when you'll need, be needing a quote. And of course, this wonderful quote from Tom Lutz, editor in chief of the LA Review of Books Shankwala takes the world um, on his own terms and wrestles it to the ground. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Eric Shankweiler. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me jump in on the UCR reading. I've been told I have to get actually quite lewd with this thing, uh, so you guys can hear me properly. My voice doesn't carry terribly well. Uh, this is my debut novel. Uh, it's published by MG Press. They're a very small press. It's only their second book. Uh, it's a pretty new endeavor. My elevator pitch, uh, which is something you guys are going to have to work on, I have this down to a science. I can even say it in one breath. Uh, Above All Men is about David Parrish. He's a war veteran farmer who was trying to keep his family and farm together in the wake of the economic collapse of America. Boom. <laughs> and then the agent gets to go back to their phone, like that quick. It's really great. I'm going to read you a few sections. Um, a little bit of context that you're going to need is Matcha is the dog, Red is David's best friend, Sam is his son, Helene is his wife, and they've just come back from the funeral. David was standing with Matcha on the front porch when Red came around the bend. Matcha struggled down the steps and then trotted to meet him and she circled his legs and came back to the yard. Red lifted his hand and dropped it and David raised his. How'd it go? Pretty rough. Sam took it hard. He shrugged. Maybe it's better this way. Maybe it would hurt him worse to see it later. I don't really know. He hung his head up past the railing to see the sky. It wasn't long after mid-afternoon and the sun was still far from the western horizon. Do you want to come riding? There's a little work to do. Sure. Let me go in and tell her. Helene was at the sink and Samuel was still at the table. He stopped in the doorway and then stood beside Samuel. Helene was washing the dishes. I got a seat of the herd real quick. Will you be all right? Yeah. He patted Samuel on the back and nodded to the sink. Why don't you let those be, hon? Because things need doing here, too. Well, he turned. I'll be back. He left the kitchen and got his hat and jacket from the coat rack. At the sound of the door, Red stood up from the bottom part step, and they walked down the road, 
Let me try that again. At the sound of the door, Red stood up from the bottom porch step and they walked down the road toward Danvers's. Matcha followed them until David pointed back to her. You stay. The dog halted. Then went on to the barn. Samuel Silver Bay stood cribbing at the stall door. He led the horse out and they saddled it in David's in turn and Red took them out. David lifted the emasculator from its peg on the wall and wiped it clean with a rag. He poured disinfectant over it in his hands and he shook them dry. Red blanched when he stepped out with it. You didn't say you were doing that. Isn't it a little too late in the season? It's pretty close, but you're on the hook now. He took his bay toward the gate and Red followed. He let them through the gate and stepped up onto the saddle and he watched Red struggle up. When he was settled, they rode southeast, cutting across the property. They rode in silence for a long while, taking in the faltering grass and the few trees. They passed remnants of old boundaries, fallen fence posts, and the squared foundation of a long gone shed. They leaned back as their horses stepped down a grade and righted. Tom and Git, they saw the herd gathered at the creek in the distance. Red turned to David. You know I'm on site? No, but it's not like there's 200 head here anymore. He shouldn't be hard to find. Red smirked. They separated and cut into the animals to spread them out, and they circled, and he watched Red ride around the periphery from the corner of his eye. There was something in his silhouette. The rope in David's hand turned gritty from memory, and he was in the trench by the dry riverbed. It was raining like it always rained, and the sky was behind... The sky was low over the trees, and he could see them coming out from behind the cover of ferns and dwarf bamboo and sliding into the draw and running toward their side. Red was first over the mouth of the trench, and David was there with him, and they were rushing to meet the soldiers, and when Red called to him and pointed, he didn't know how it was not pouring. He's right here. David spun the horse. The calf was at the edge of the herd, and David dropped the loop, the loop over its head easily and pulled it tight, and he dropped from the saddle. Red was still on his horse, and David passed the rope to him, and he rode off until the calf fell to its knees, and David pushed it to the ground and knelt on its shoulder. Red came over and handed David the emasculator and pulled on the calf's foreleg. He patted its neck. Docile enough thing, ain't he? Killed his mama coming out. David rolled to the calf's rear and pinned the tail to its back with his elbow and pulled the scrotum free of the legs. He took the knife from his pocket and lined the blade up and cut and pulled. The calf recoiled and screamed, and Red lay over top of to keep it from thrashing away. There's the fight. He took the calf's testes and pulled, pulled them until the muscle and the cord separated, and he crimped the first with the emasculator and held it tight. The tail slipped loose from under his arm when he reached for the other testicle, and the calf began whipping its tail about, and it spiked on the knife, lying at an angle in the grass. Hell. Blood was painted across his chest. He crimped the second testicle with his face averted. He opened the tool and stood away to get a spray can from the horse and he doused the scrotum with it. You can let go. Red pushed off and the calf stood wobbling. It ran to the herd with the skin flapping red and pink at its rear. David stooped to pick up the knife and he wiped it on the seam of his jeans and put it in his back pocket. There was a spat of blood on Red's cheek and across the sleeve of his shirt and hands. David spun around to fight himself in the field and he saw the horses standing aside grazing and he wiped at his brow with the back of his hand. Smell of tissue and insides on his fingers. He closed his eyes. You got a headache or something? No, I'm all right. They mounted and headed for the gate. The light was just beginning to pull from the air in the east. Red was ahead of him and from his shape alone, David was there again with the soil and blood slathered on him like porridge. Red was cutting the femur from a soldier in the middle of the draw. David shuddered and leaned from the horse and vomited. The horse stopped and, the red, and red sawed around and helped David into the grass. Jesus, bud, what the hell? Between his fingers there was a give like the rubber tube of an artery. His ears were ringing. He felt a pressure like a fist behind his forehead, not punching but pushing. Hey, come on. Red slapped at his cheek. David rolled his eyes up. He retched once and fell onto his hands and knees, and he stayed there for a while with Red sitting on his haunches beside him, holding his hat. The land was beginning to color from the sunset, and it was getting cool. Eventually, David sat, and he wiped his eyes and mouth with a handkerchief. He sat there, breathing slowly. He held the handkerchief wrinkled up, and he began to fold it and cocked his head. Do you still have that bone? That femur? Red put his hand on the earth, and he shifted his weight. I think it's in one of those holes he found me in. David shook his head. 
Do you have yours? David closed his eyes again. What? Going to skip ahead and actually end the evening a little bit earlier than I had planned on because everyone else seemed to be doing likewise. Let's all party. It's Friday. One second. So there's a climactic event that happens toward the middle of the book. Uh, There's a murder of a local child, and this sets David off. All the PTSD, all the trauma that he's internalized from the war uh, is set loose. And he roams across the countryside looking for the killer that he assumes that he knows. Now he's the next county over, and the place that he's about to ride into is worse than the town that he's come from, which is doing fairly well in comparison. There were two horses tied up in front of the only open bar, and he got down to tie his own, the reins flopping about in his hands until he dropped them over the rail and went inside. There were three customers, one of them asleep at a table in the back and the others at the bar. He stood just inside the door and the bartender swiveled his head to look at him, bent in conversation with an old man. David waited a moment longer before he came toward them and he rested an elbow on the counter. The bartender sniffed and straightened. She's by the church on Wing Road. What's that? Macy. I don't know who Macy is. The bartender's eyebrows lifted. Oh, I figured you were hunting some strange. What the hell are you talking about? He waved his hand over the bar like he would wipe something away. My mistake. What can I get you? I'll take a bourbon. I got some moonshine. No bourbon. David shrugged. Why not? The bartender turned for a bottle of clear liquor, and he poured a shot. He slid it toward David and put the bottle back. David took the glass up and smelled it and had a sip. It burned. He set the glass back and scanned the bar again. The door at his back made him itch. I came in on wing. This Macy's running a whorehouse. The first man down the bar reached for his beer. Meth house is more like it. David lifted his chin. He drank half the glass and held his breath until his throat unclenched. She's a druggie? Whores herself out for it. Used to be a hot piece. The bartender was watching them both and nodding sadly. David tilted his glass and set it back. Do you guys know anything about a fellow named Murphy? Can't say I do. The bartender rested against the shelf behind him. Murphy who? One that broke into a house north of Claremont? What are you after him for? David eyed the door. Are you from around here? Yeah. Where exactly? Don't you worry about it. The bartender lifted a hand. I'm not trying to pry. David finished the shot, slapped it down on the bar, and stood away. The customer closest spun on a stool to face him. You working hard to be an asshole, or is it coming naturally? He settled and glanced at the man. I think it's been a secret talent all my life. He turned to the door and stopped with his hand on it. This Macy, does she have kids? The bartender took his glass and put it below the counter. I believe so. She's probably sold them by now. Thanks. It ain't my business, but you watch your ass if you're headed out there. She keeps company with a couple of rough old boys. Rough how? He tied a customer to a chair once. Started a little campfire out in the field and sat him over it. You're kidding me. Nope. Didn't even set him on fire directly. I guess they let him go once the fire burnt through the ropes. He's the one that told the police before he died. David shook his head. He went out. It looked as though no one had gone by. The air itself was unmoved. The city was dark, but for a few unshot streetlights. Riding the way he'd come, he passed a strip mall and a few empty restaurants and houses. Beyond them, he was in the country. He got down from the bay and walked it along a creek half mile from the church and tied it to a tree. The water smelled of moss, and he could smell the grass and the weeds and the cool air. Back on the road, he checked the chamber on the rifle, and he held it in his hand by the stalk. The church was dark, and rounding it, the house was as well. He went up on the front steps and drew the knife, and he blasted at the door with a handle. There was no answer. He'd put dents in the wood. He tucked the knife away. He kicked the door and it broke off its hinges with him following like he'd ride it into the room. It was pitch dark inside, humps of furniture standing in what was the living room. 
He could barely see the staircase, and to the left, the black of a hallway. The door rattled on the floor when he stepped off it, and he walked deeper in, hand-seeking. In the middle of the room, the hair stood on his neck, and he looked up to the stairs. There'd been a sound. Who's there? David eased the rifle out from his side and raised it. It was a man's voice. I've got a gun trained right at you. David guided the rifle back to his shoulder and named it the voice. Same here. Bullshit. Shoot then. There was no answer for a moment. We don't got any drugs. I'm not looking for drugs. Is this where Macy lives? Yeah. She know a guy named Murphy? David waited. There was a sound from the back of the house. He slid farther from the open doorway and the little light it cast. There was a sound of metal on wood and he guessed the man had set his gun on the banister. Whispers. His shadow came through the door and rushed toward him and David toppled over. His shoulder struck a doorway and his knee slipped across tile and he punched into the trunk of whoever was atop him. Struggling to stand, he up Struggling to stand up, he found the person's head, and he took it two-handed and hauled it toward the wall beside them, and it bounced off with a cry. He stood and gave a look toward the stairs, and he saw another shadow. The attacker cut an elbow at his shin, and David reached down and grabbed the arm, thin, and pulled the man into what he guessed was the kitchen. He drew the knife and hauled the man up to... Uh, hold... One more time. Hauled the man up with it to his throat, and the man shouted. They backed together to a countertop, and then a match popped in front of them. David winced and saw a man holding a shotgun and a woman behind him holding the match. The man in his arms was wiry and stank, and David turned the blade slightly to let the man with the gun see it better. The match went out. Swirls of blue in the black. Light another. His attacker squirmed. Don't kill me. Light another match. Thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.